Well, this week begins the second half of the epistle to the church at Ephesus. And this morning we turn there in Ephesians chapter 4 to what most commentators consider to be the practical application of the gospel section of this letter. The first three chapters fit rather neatly into the idea of the, of the basic doctrine of Christ as our Savior, that salvation is a free gift from Him that no one can boast, and that it is ours through Him. And therefore, as we saw last week, we should emphasize the inner life. He is interested in seeing us uh, grow spiritually. And uh, he concluded this first section in verse 20 of chapter 3 by saying, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is in work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now he turns to apply these things, and we listen in verses 1 through 16. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, and just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended into the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will all grow, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, as each part does its work. This is God's work. So we have a description now of the Christian life and of the application of the gospel to our lives that is fundamentally unified. That is to say, we all are in the same boat. The differences represented even in this room, let alone in the church around the world, could not be counted. Differences in age, differences in capability, differences in experience, Differences in current need and, and, and crisis and sense of calling on the Lord. We all are in a different place. But Paul says we're all in the same place. 
As a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. This is the blanket statement to cover the entire rest of the book of Ephesians. It's sort of the, first, the, the last verse of chapter 3, the wonderful benediction sort of brings to a close, or at least to a semicolon, the beginning of the, first, of the book, the first part. And now we enter into the second part, which all more or less can, can relate back to this one simple phrase. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. You have received a heavenly calling. You have a, an inheritance in heaven, and I urge you to live a life that is worthy of that. In other words, high calling, high life. Wonderful Savior, wonderful servant. Wonderful gospel, wonderful congregation of believers who, who are worthy of that wonderful gospel. And it's helpful that we see that everyone's, uh, as I say in the outline, fundamentally everyone's Christian salvation is alike. Not the experience of it, not the time of it, not the circumstances of it, but it is fundamentally alike. And this is, this is captured in the old uh, song, the old gospel song, Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion. Give me that old-time religion that's good enough for me. It was good for the prophet Daniel. It's good enough for me. There is a sense that that song expresses that we are unified throughout all circumstances, all ages, all cultures, as one. And when we stand in heaven before the throne of Christ, we will all stand together as one. Every tribe and nation, every people from around the world will come together And they'll all be looking up to the same one Savior who saved us all. And the basis of that salvation will also be alike. Whether it's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Old Testament looking forward to the Messiah, or whether it's Peter, Paul, and James, and John in the New Testament looking back to his work, we will be unified. And so in this sense, Paul presents a bit of a commentary on what Jesus said when he said, they will know you are Christians by your love, by your, by your unity, by your outward expression of this inward reality, and by the fact that we are united in him, connected in him, and we have no standing apart from him. We don't get to heaven because of our earthly citizenship. We get to heaven because of what he has done for us. So fundamentally, every Christian salvation is alike. God has saved everyone in the same way, by the same means of regeneration, and by the same adoption into the same family. There are unique circumstances surrounding individual conversions, but in summary, all the differences between Christians are comparatively minor because they have the same new birth. New beginnings, connection to Christ and his resurrection. We have a fundamental unity. It's not something that we can see. Sometimes we can feel it. Sometimes we can sense it when we talk to other believers. But when we look upon the congregation, we see differences. And when we talk to people about things, we see differences. This is where the Bible is helpful in, in making its declaration because it, it's somewhat what moves against what we experience. And it says, the thing to remember is, you are one. You are united in me. 
unless we have missed it, there is, verse 4, one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope, one salvation, that is, one uh, reliance. And, of course, we saw in the first series, first in our series on Ephesians, that this hope is really the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So you, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, there is one Lord, there is one faith, there is one baptism, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now in the New Testament, it's difficult to find a passage which more heavily emphasizes the unity that we have in Christ. It is the controlling factor. It is the one thing that influences everything else. And is the overarching concept when Jesus said, they'll know you are Christians by your love, implies that you will be unified and are unified invisibly, if not visibly, in Christ. However, we also recognize that there is diversity. And implicit in what Paul says is the recognition that there are all different kinds of people in the body of Christ. Unity is not uniformity. Individuality is discovered. In Ephesians 2.10, we read that we are all doing, we are doing, uh, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And those good works are many and varied. Our uh, involvement in the kingdom doesn't look like what other people do necessarily. We don't even sing necessarily the same songs or worship in the same language or in the same place. The unity of the church is an invisible and organic unity to the Lord. It's not a uniformity on the outside. It is in the unity of the body, however, that you learn about your individuality and your unique gifts. As you serve Christ, you will discover that you are his workmanship You are a work of art, a unique poem. God will pour himself into you so that you reflect his glory in a particular way. You have been crafted and shaped by a heavenly father who loves you. You are unique. You are a unique gift in his body, as unique as snowflakes and fingerprints. You will begin to find out who you are as you serve him. Who can argue with this? It's true. We have a fundamental organic unity that the Bible talks about on the one hand, and we have a non-uniformity and individuality and complexity and diversity on the other hand that we see all around us. Both are true, and both are significant. However, because of sin and because of the fall, only Jesus reflects a perfect personality. So sin has skewed us all a bit and given us peculiarities, idiosyncrasies, and difficulties that not only make us unique, but make us incomplete. There's a fundamental incompletion about each one of us that has been supplied on the spiritual level by Christ, but in our lives, any husband and wife, any two friends can tell you, we are complementary. No one of us possesses a perfect and full-rounded set of gifts and personality. Only Jesus was, had complete mental health. Only Jesus thought and acted in perfect congruity. Only Jesus was neither too quiet or too talkative. Only Jesus was neither too gentle nor too firm. 
in him we have the perfect, perfect personality. In ourselves we have something less. So how can this unity and diversity possibly be kept together? Look at verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for work. He recognizes the diversity and celebrates it. Says, I want you to do this, and I want you to do that, and I want you to do something else. I made you that way because I want in the whole, in the aggregate, as a group, I want you to be able to get the job done. And the way to get the job done is for all those parts to fit together. Because sin has skewed you and made you inadequate in some ways. Only by being a part of the whole body will you be able to sustain those inadequacies, overcome them, and grow. But this means cooperation. And cooperation begins here in the head. A commitment to cooperation. No marriage, no friendship, no family can stay together because the differences are very great. Unless there's a commitment to unity. There'll be just too many reasons to not cooperate and not get along. But cooperation is possible. Because, as he says, he ascended and descended. He came down and lived among us. He sees our need and he descended to do battle with the things that enslaved us and given us, on this glorious tangent, a wonderful calling. So let's talk a moment about calling and our part in it. If we have unique gifts and circumstances and experiences... And we're all thrown together in the body of Christ here and around the world at various times in our lives. How do we fit in? What part should we play? What is God's will for my life? Now this can vary over time, and uh, as we'll see, but let's talk first of all about mistakes to avoid. You don't call yourself, first of all. Verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. It comes from him. The calling into his service of any kind comes from above. He works in and through us, but we must recognize its source. It's fundamentally important. The disciples did not gather as a committee two and three here and there, saying, what a great idea it would be if we could find the Messiah. I've heard he's here somewhere. Let's look for him. Jesus went to them individually. In the middle of the night, he called Samuel out of his bed. Abraham was in Ur of the Chaldees, and the Lord spoke to him. Over and over and over again, the Bible shows us there's the calling of the Lord. Samuel thought he knew who should be the next king of Israel. He looked at the sons of Jesse and said, it's this one. And God said, no, it isn't. All right, this one then, no. Well, then who is it? It's the least 
He's not even here. I'm calling David, who's out with the livestock, out in the countryside. It's just a fundamental principle of the Bible. It cannot be controverted that the calling of the Lord into his service, as well as into Christianity itself, is from him. And we have to recognize that in the beginning. We do not call ourselves. It's so important that I put it twice in the outline. This is in God's hands. Your natural gifts do not necessarily determine your calling. Israel, in fact, got in trouble because they thought that Saul, among all the men of Israel, looked like a king. He was tall. He was strong. He was majestic in appearance. He will be a great king, they thought. They were wrong. He had the natural gifts and leadership ability to some extent that a king would need. But God sees deeper. Your natural gifts do not necessarily determine your calling. Lots of talented people are not well suited to what they are doing because of their pride or other reasons. Talents are not necessarily spiritual gifts. Judas, let's remember, was a talented man. A trustworthy man, it seemed. As I've said before, I say again, you don't make the treasurer your least respected person. They they entrusted their money to him. And he must have shown himself to be effective in that calling because they kept him in that position until the very end. And midway through Jesus' ministry, if someone had said one of you would be a betrayer, they would never have selected Judas as the slacker, the evil one. He was an officer among the twelve. He was not mentioned as prominently as Peter and James and John, but he was nevertheless their treasurer. Talents are not necessarily spiritual gifts. Demas was with the disciples for a while, the apostles, after the death and resurrection of Christ. And he turned back. Did he return? We don't know. But he proved to be gifted, capable, acceptable. But he turned back. So it's a fundamental mistake that, to think that we can call ourselves. Secondly, we do not call ourselves. They are not, this calling is not based on our own feelings. You can be deceived. The church's role is to confirm or contradict your impressions. Do not be too passive or too aggressive in putting yourself forward to serve. And Jesus spoke on this point so beautifully in Luke 14. He said, when you go to a dinner... And there's a whole big banquet room empty, and you get there early. Don't go sit at the front. Don't sit at the head table. If you do that, you might be embarrassed when you get there that the name tags on the table do not include your name. Or, as as the story tells, you may not be called up to sit at that place. In fact, you may be told to go back and sit down somewhere else. Be careful about self-advancement then. Be careful about putting yourself forward. Be careful about saying, I can do it. Be circumspect. Is God calling me to do it? Does he want me to do it? Is this something that he's laid upon my heart? 
If so, as I said, the church will confirm or contradict your impressions. Don't either be too passive and wait to get that phone call or say, Lord, I'll do it if I see it written in the clouds. But don't push yourself forward either to the point of saying, I've got to do this because I am your gift. Every gift also has a duty, too. You must not cop out from service because something is not your gift. If it is your if it is your duty, and you must not use your gift to project your service on others. So, for example, the Bible tells us to pray. Now, some of us pray, it seems, in a more gifted manner, not just publicly, but they're given to prayer more deeply and more surpassingly. And they become what we call informally prayer warriors or people who are known for their prayer, the, the, the uh, vitality of their prayer life. And we thank God for them. I call on them all the time in the church. They are interested in whatever the prayer requests are, and that's a wonderful thing. But does that mean that only they should pray? No. Prayer is the universal calling of God's people. Furthermore, evangelism. We'd like to leave all of the evangelism to Billy Graham, but he's 90 years old, 92 years old. We'd like to leave evangelism to someone else, and and especially to those who are really gifted at it. People who have television and radios, broadcast ministries, and really big churches, and really large followings of people, and, and really a wonderful record of seeing conversion. Does that mean the rest of us are exempt? Does that mean the Great Commission doesn't apply to us? No. No. uh, If it is your gift, it is your duty. But even if it is not your gift, if the Bible enjoins it upon you, you and I, we must do it. But where do I see particular fruitfulness or a particular burden to serve? Often, service begins in the heart. Our hearts are touched by something or someone, and we feel inclined in that direction. We had a, a couple in the uh, Joplin trip who wanted to go last year, and we weren't able to go. Their interest was sustained for a full year, and they were able to go this year. They had a burden in their heart that wasn't from the minister or from the church's announcement patterns. The Lord touched their hearts and called them to go. And you've all had that experience from time to time. It's a wonderful thing, although scary. So my recommendation is that you do as many things as possible in Christ's service in order that your duty in, in order to do your duty and perhaps discover an unexpected giftedness. By the time we reach maturity, we have some idea as to what we're good at and what we're not good at. But that's a worldly appraisal of our gifts. Most of us have latent gifts that have not been discovered or pulled out. Surely David, the shepherd boy, didn't know he could be king. He'd been told all his life, you're the least, you're the youngest, do the work. All of us have latent gifts that can be used for his kingdom. And there's nothing more beautiful or wonderful 
than someone using and expressing those gifts in a new way. Trusting the Lord for something they never thought they could do. For the first time, stepping forward and saying, I'll help. It's not something I've done before, but I'll try. It's not something that I am good at, but I'll, I'll, I'll try. Wonderful, wonderful service. And it's the Lord who uses those latent gifts, those non-spectacular things, to accomplish his wonderful kingdom. And so the body of Christ is united because of what he has done for us in our salvation. And we are united because we all have the same calling to faith in Jesus Christ and to serving him, a calling that will be concluding only in heaven. And it will come to its wonderful fruition there. In the meantime, in this imperfect and sin-distorted world, we struggle with our adequacies and inadequacies. And we wrestle with the will of God for how I might get involved in X or Y or Z. So let's look in then as we move toward conclusion, three elements to a call. First of all, affinity. Do you want to do it? Paul writes to Timothy, he who desires the office or who aspires to the office of elder desires a noble task. Do you aspire to do it? Oftentimes, this is not present at first. In fact, this is what we don't want to do. Think of Jonah. Called to Nineveh, he says, no, no. I feel no affinity to that. I'm not called. Ordinarily, however, most of the time, affinity is involved in some way you have a sense that you at least might be able to do it. And great harm is done when you don't respond to that. When you hang back and say, oh, well, uh, somebody else will do it, or, oh, well, I I don't know, it might not go very well for me, you retard your growth as a Christian. Trust him. If you have an inclination and you've never done it before, you might be really good at it. Second, of course, is ability. Do you see fruit in your life? Is the body confirming you? What do I want? Why do I want this so much when I'm not so good at it? It's a, it's a question that we have to, have to ask. Why do I want this so much when I'm not that good at it? I, I, how do I evaluate that? That's something that other Christians can help you with. And then thirdly, opportunity. Do others want to work with you? Is this ministry available? Is there a need for it? We can't do everything, for example, in a family or a local church. We can't do all the ministries that might be thought of or be done by all the churches in the world. God has given us a particular and abiding interest in the shoebox ministry. Some years we have more boxes than others, but it continues to be part of what motivates the congregation here at Grace. Not every church participates. Not every church has a food distribution on Saturday morning. It's a unique gift the Lord has given us since before we had a building or a parking lot in which to distribute food. But he might say, tomorrow, that's enough. Let someone else do it. Or 
he might give us something else to do. Do you have a burden, interest, or desire to be involved in an existing or new ministry? That could be inside this church or it could be in, in the world of Christian service, a very large world. Do you have what it takes to meet the need? Do you have the time? Do you have the energy? Give it a try. Are there others who will work with you? Is there someone that you can pray with about this who at least will train you or that, you would, that, that would encourage you in this work? Upon reflection and research, is there really a need? Recheck your interest. Sometimes we want to do something simply because we want to do it and we aren't called. And it can be tricky to determine that. You grow by serving. You grow up into him. He says he gives these some to be apostles and some to be prophets. And they are all their purpose is to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, growing up in him. Verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. Gifts are the means. Fruit is the ends. Busyness does not save you and is no final mark of salvation. So just to be here, to be involved in Christian ministry in some way or another doesn't save us. It's still the work of Christ. So let's review. We have a fundamental invisible unity. We really do. It can't be seen always. In fact, it's used, it, many times it's seen as disunity or disharmony because there are so many people talking at once and there are so many different opinions. But we are fundamentally united in Christ. That's what his great work was. And he wants his church to be known by its love and unity in spite of the fact that we're not all alike and don't always see things in the same way. So, very simply... That along with the great commandment that you love one another and the great commission that we go into the world to, to spread the gospel, those are the two great commandments of the whole New Testament and indeed the whole Bible. The great commandment that you love one another, the great commission that you go into all the world. Fundamental, foundational, and mentioned here in Ephesians 4 as the fundamental unity of the rest of the book. The fundamental concept of the rest of the book. He's going to talk about marriage, for example, and speak about the overcoming disharmony there. He's going to talk about slaves and masters. He's going to talk about wrestling with the devil and uh, spiritual warfare. He's going to talk about not being drunk with wine. He's going to talk about a number of things. And in so doing, he's going to come back to this first verse of chapter 4, saying that we should live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Does that mean perfect um, moral behavior? Well, we ought to strive for it. But what, what he goes on to describe is the way you can evaluate whether you are living a life that is worthy of the calling that you have received is how unified you are, how loving you are toward one another, overcoming differences with love. That's the test. Incontrovertible. Clearly cold-eyed description of the Christian life. Our purpose 
And his purpose is to take all of these broken pieces and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Take all of these bricks and make a building whose cornerstone is Christ. Take all these family members and unite them into one head. Take all of these disparate pieces and parts of the body and, and put them together under Christ. That's the great purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ in this generation. And we should get on board with that. For he's the one who calls us to this unity and we are answerable for it. In addition, we recognize that because of the effects of sin, we are broken people. And we argue. Conflict. Right after the fall, what happens? They get banished from the garden and brother kills brother. Chapter 4 of Genesis. His own brother rose up and killed him. Conflict is everywhere. Conflict among loved ones. Conflict within a family. Conflict within co-workers. It's everywhere. And we are called to overcome that conflict by being united in the church at least in Christ. And within the church, he does the calling. He is the one who equips. He is the one who brings these pieces together into unity. We don't call ourselves. He calls us. And he puts us in place. That makes us, therefore, circumspect, careful about these callings. But not too careful or we would never respond. I can't give you a road map clearly saying do this and don't do that in the Christian service and in the Christian life. But I do say he will work it and sort it out in a wonderful way. So as we come to the table, it is one table, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. And we are brought together by him. Nothing else could do it. No power on earth could unify these people, even this many people, without his, his wonderful work. He is interested in these things. He wants to see them happen. And he calls us to such service. Remember his prayer in John 17. I pray, Father, that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we see a lot of reasons to disagree. And because of our own personalities and perspectives, it often happens. And while you are not calling us, we see, to unanimity or uniformity, you are calling us to this messy concept of love and unity in Christ. Help us to be good at this. To be good not just at repenting, but accepting the repentance of others. Not just overlooking our own faults, but overlooking them in others. 
And help us as we seek to follow your calling to hear it, to trust you. Some are considering serving you in new ways, and I pray that you give them the courage, if it is your call, to accept that new position and place. Others have grown tired in the service, and we pray that you might renew their efforts by again renewing their call to serve you. For it is you alone who is worthy. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for accomplishing on the cross a redemption that can bring together men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and nation around the world. Finally, Lord, help us specifically to be unified with those with whom we differ, to be one outwardly as well as spiritually, and to overlook those things which divide us. Unless they be doctrinal and serious or moral in some way, we pray that these lesser things can be of less importance and we can focus on the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unify us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.